Okay. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for y'all who got an extra hour of sleep that you're here on time. Uh, some of us look refreshed. Others still look like you need about two days more sleep. This morning, we're continuing with our study of God's love. And last week, you remember, we connected the love of God with the attribute of God being righteous. Now remember what that means. God is righteous means that in every aspect, all the time, without any waiver, without any change at all, everything that God does, when he does it, how he does it, why he does it or doesn't, absolutely comprehensively everything about God and everything about his activities, his ways and his works, it is all what? Right. And why is it right? Because God himself is the definition, the very foundation of what right is. And so everything about his love, whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we understand it or not, everything is a right way. So God's way of loving, God's love is a right love. And as we'll find out as we go through this today and continuing, we will find out that our natural love, the love with which we were born, the love that is in us because of our birth as fallen people, every aspect of our love is wrong. Because if any aspect of our love is right, it means it is compatible with God's love. And as fallen people, as those who are imbued with sin, and we're talking about before being saved, and we're talking about the populace of the world, every aspect of our love, therefore, is wrong. Now, have you ever thought like that? Isn't it normal for us to think, well, I'm going to try to do this and that, and it's going to be right. Or we affirm one another in the rightness of our actions and of our love, not knowing whether or not that love is actually the activity of God's right love in us. And so because God's love is always, and in every case, right, what does that mean with our human love? It is always, and in every case, what? wrong or unright. So let's continue. This means that God always loves righteously. He, his love is always a righteous love. Now here is the problem. How can a righteous God who always loves righteously set his love and affection and devotion and purpose upon an unright people. And he remains right. 
How can he do that? This is the conundrum, one of the big conundrums of the Christian faith. How can a righteous God, how can a God who is righteous in himself and whose love is always righteous, always right, love a people who are always wrong and embrace them unto himself and himself remain right in doing so? How can that be? So let's talk about that. Because God is righteous. Remember, we talked about this last week. He loves justice. Remember Psalm 37, 28. He loves justice, which means that he must punish all unrighteousness. Remember Nehemiah 1.3. The Lord will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. I will not acquit the guilty. Every sin must be punished. And if there is any sin, any one sin, one time, anywhere, at any time in all the creation, if there is any even one sin that remains unpunished, God has missed his own righteousness. Do we get that? That means that absolutely every sin whatsoever, God must punish it. Why? Because he's just. What does just mean? Remember what just means. Just does not mean what the world says it means. Just means those actions which are in moral correspondence to God's nature, to God's own righteousness. And we know God's nature and God's righteousness. He has shown us what it is because he has given us his law, which is a statement of his holiness. And so justice means those activities which are in keeping with his law, which cause us to be in right, correct standing before the law of God. Every person is in wrong standing before the law of God, everyone. So how can a God who is right in himself embrace these people who were wrong in relation to his own law. How can he do that? Remember what Romans 132 said, the unrighteous are worthy of death. Romans 2, 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, and I put such unjust, unjust things, which mean what? Those things which are not compatible or in keeping with God's own righteousness. I hope, I hope that the Holy Spirit is adjusting and clarifying our thinking and our understanding concerning these matters of justice and righteousness and love. I hope that we are getting to be more biblically anchored in this. Remember Matthew 7, 23. Remember what Jesus said. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Lawlessness is the activity of injustice. Injustice is lawlessness in relation to God's law, not man's law. There is no way on the face of this earth that any human being or group of human beings or movement can say that we are practicing justice unless they are filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit who is the just spirit of God. And in fact, 
to attempt to practice justice in a societal way apart from the work of the Holy Spirit is to be absolutely unjust in relation to what God says justice is. Do we see that? We're not trying to tear down what is going on out there in the world. What we're needing to do is to make sure that we, the people of God, understand what true, genuine, divine justice is. So when we encounter the discussion of justice and injustice, when we encounter that discussion, we encounter it from the platform of what God says about it rather than what the world says about it. Amen? That has to be our place. And then our relationship to it and the way we respond or don't respond to what's happening in the world and what the world is telling us we should or should not do must be compatible with God's righteousness, not with what the world thinks we ought to do. Amen, church? And because God is righteous, he is right to love us with an everlasting love. Remember Jeremiah 31.3? So here we are. We are a guilty people. We were born in sin. But we were born as guilty people, but as those people who are the children of God whom he will save. So we were born in sin, bred in sin. By nature, children of wrath, remember, in Ephesians 2, 3. But at the same time, God has loved us with an everlasting love, Darlene. So you mean to tell me that God has loved an unjust people with an everlasting love, and he himself remains just? Do we see where the problem is? And how then can this be? All of God's people are included in Romans 3.23. Do you remember what Romans 3.23 means? Uh, says? What does it mean? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This means that for God to love his people righteously, and by the way, that's being redundant. Did you notice I was being redundant? You know what redundant means? I said the same thing twice. I repeated myself. For God to love us righteously, for God to love is automatically what? Righteous. But I put the word righteous there to enforce, just to kind of enforce what we're saying. For God to love his people, and that means righteously, he must enact justice and extend mercy simultaneously to us. If God is going to be true to himself and consistent with his own nature, he must exact justice because of our sin. But at the same time and simultaneously, he must love us. Why? We understand why God must punish us. Do we get that? Does everybody get that? We understand why God must punish us because we're sinful people. But when we say God must love us, do we understand why? We've talked about this before. God is obligated to love us. 
But where is the obligation set? In us or in himself? Come on, you can speak. Where is the obligation set? In himself. In himself. He has determined that we would be the people of his love. He has determined this unilaterally and sovereignly. Do we get that? This is why God's love for us is secure. God has not set his love upon us having something to do with us intrinsically. He has done this because he has unilaterally on his own and sovereignly, according to his own decree, decided that every person in here who is saved and every person in this world who has been, is, and will ever be saved, that we are the people of his love. Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the world. He predestined us. How can he do that? Before the foundation of the world, he must punish, he must punish sin. But at the same time, he must love us. And so how does this happen? So how can a righteous God love a sinful people and remain true to himself? The answer is in many places, but I felt the Lord give the answer in John 1.14. Remember John 1.14? It's, it's one of the biggest, most significant verses in the entire Bible, and every one of us should know it by heart. Remember, John has started off in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him when without him was not anything made that was made. Do you remember that? Those first three verses. Then we go travel along and to get to verse 14, and what does it say? What does it say? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his, his glory, that glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Therefore, the necessity, the necessity of the incarnation, the moment in the beginning God created, the moment that happened, God knowing comprehensively what would happen. The moment Genesis 1-1 happened, God committed himself because of his personal decision. He committed himself in a time frame to the incarnation. Do we see that? Why? Because he knew Adam and Eve would what? Sin he knew the people of his image would fall from that image, and he knew that he would save them by the blood of the cross because he must be consistent with his creative purpose to make us. Some have said, well, suppose after Adam and Eve sinned, God just wiped everything out. That's impossible. May I say that again? It's what? It's impossible. Why? Because for God to have wiped it out and started all over again means that he was inconsistent. He didn't achieve his purpose. So he, let's try it again. <laughs> Whoops, let's try it again. 
in this one man in the incarnation. God, God's justice and mercy embrace as one incredibly blazing, enormous, incomprehensible act where justice and mercy come together in one man for all of God's people. Justice and mercy embrace in one man. Yes, you can write notes. God's justice and mercy embrace in one man for all God's people. Why? So that God's integrity and honor and the consistency of his will be achieved by this one man. That's what the gospel is about. The gospel is the glory of God in human, in his people. You can define the gospel that way. We can define it a number of ways. God, the gospel is the glory of God in his people. That's what the gospel is. Now, there's a lot of explanation of how that works out, but that's what it is. The ultimate purpose of the gospel is the glory of God manifested, dwelt in his own people who have been made relationally one with him. Relationally one. You can read that in 2 Peter 1, 4. On the cross, on the cross, God exacted the full measure of his justice upon Christ, who is our substitute. What does that mean? Took our place. And our representative, what does that mean? He was there in our place, but we were represented or we were there in him. So when God punished his son, he punished his son instead of punishing us. And he punished our sin in Christ, who is our representative. So what verse comes to my mind when I say God punished our sin? In Christ. Why? Because we were in Christ. Therefore, if you would, we endured the wrath of God and the justice of God against us because we were sinners in Christ. So what does Paul say in Galatians 2.20? Come on. You need to know these verses. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I, meaning the fleshly, the, the, the old man. It is no longer I who live, but what? Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2.20. Enormous verse. Because you see, Harold, it places us in Christ. And so when God crucifies his son, God crucified his son. He punished fully, finally, and forever all our unrighteousness. Amen? That's 
the justice of God. As a result, God has forgiven us. What does Colossians 2.13 say? Having dot, 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 forgiven us, what? All trespasses. There is a teaching out there that our forgiveness is only of original sin. And we must walk in a way of obedience to become literally righteous in our own activities. And if we're not at the end of death, we must be purged of what remains to be made righteous in us called purgatory so that we can go to God and stand before God this way. I have worked righteousness in me. I have done the work of righteousness. Now God can accept me as a righteous person. That's not what happened. There's also a teaching out there that says this. Oh, yes, God has forgiven you. You are forgiven people. But if you sin and if you do not repent, that sin some way must be punished again. And if you sin and die before you repent, you will not go to heaven. Well, you see, the problem with that is it bounces against all the attributes of God that we know about. Do we see this? This is why it's critical when we study the love of God, we must put it within the context of who he is, of his own attributes, which helps us to see, wait a minute, this is inconsistent with God's omniscience, which knew of every sin, but he forgave it. Of his omnipotence, which has the power to forgive, which is of, with, of his sovereignty, which decreed it because of his own will, of his immutability. He does not change as to his love. Do you see how all of that gives us the understanding of God's love and bounces against so much other teaching? As a result, God has forgiven us, and he's justified us. What does Romans 5, 1 say? Do you have these, some of these notes in your book, in your outline? What does Romans 5, 1 say? <sighs> Write these verses down and remember them. Having been, what tense is that? Past tense. Now, when were we justified? Come on, church. When were we justified? Before the foundation of the world in God's heart, but in a time frame, in a human time frame, when were we justified? At the cross. You and I were not justified when we received Christ. We were justified where? At the cross. Why? I was in Christ. What does Galatians 2.20 say? I have been crucified with Christ. So you see, we weren't justified when I said, Jesus, I receive you. That's not when you were justified. Because we were justified at the cross, therefore we could receive the Holy Spirit and say yes to Jesus. It is the purchase of the cross that allowed the Holy Spirit 
to come upon us and change our hearts from stone to flesh. Remember Ezekiel 36, 26, and 7. To which we responded, Father, Jesus, save me. Receive, I receive this. However you say it, but the response is as a result of the work of God applying the work of justification at the cross through the death of Jesus, applying it to our hearts, then we say yes. That's how we received it. But when were you justified? Having been justified by faith, we received that work of justification that Jesus accomplished and purchased at the cross. We received it when we said yes. In other words, we embraced that which God had already given to us. It is a guarantee embrace. It's not something that God says, okay, I'm going to give my salvation to Chris Spencer. Let's, let's hope that he receives it. I'm going to give it to him. Let, let's hope he receives it. Please, Chris, please receive it. Chris receives it. Oh, but Chris doesn't receive it. Oh, oh, it failed. Does that sound like a sovereign God to you, or does that sound like a sovereign Chris Spencer? Who's sovereign in that case? Yeah, not I. <laughs> I'm talking about not I. He said not me. I'm talking about I. He knows teeth. I know grammar. <laughs> do, do we? <laughs> I had the mic too. But do we understand this? Why do I? And I feel the Holy Spirit. Why do we pound on this and insist on it? Because you see, it is rooted in our security in Christ. Because the devil does anything and everything he can to unboat our moorings from Christ. And so even maybe this week, something happened in your life, and the thought came about, what about my relationship with God? Anything happened to anybody this week that kind of challenged your relationship with God in some question? It probably did. Why God? When God? I mean, the light's off. It's easy. Uh, when do you think you're going to get these things back on? Uh, hmm. Do we see that this work is sal this work is absolutely God's? Why? Because God has sovereignly decided in eternity, and you can't even put a verb on that because God is. But that's the best we can do. That we would be His people, and them's who are his people are going to be his people and nothing is going to thwart it, right? So this is the God has forgiven and justified. Oh, by the way, what does justified mean? It means God has worked his justice in us, which means what? That sin has been paid for and we have been declared as God's just people. It means this, that we have been declared right in the sight of his law which means, yes, we sinned, and we still sin. But because of the work of Christ, our sin, absolutely everything about our old nature has been paid for at the cross so that God now declares us to be not guilty in relation to sin, 
because the guilt has been laid upon the Son of God and he has paid it fully. Therefore, God, us being in Christ, have had our sin paid for and forever. Amen? How much of your sin? Every sin God knew about. How much does he know about? All of it. Is anything left out? No. Therefore, we're justified, which means that we stand before God not as innocent. Don't you ever say that. There's only one innocent man. As what? Not guilty of breaking his law. Hey, Jonathan. So listen to this in, in, in Ephesians. I've skipped some parts of it. You were dead in your sins and trespasses and were by nature children of wrath. In other words, we were the just recipients of God's wrath. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. You see, why mercy? Because of love. God's love of justice, God's love of mercy, and God's love is of his own purpose. All of that is happening at the cross and in the resurrection. So this is how God is true to his own righteousness in pardoning our sin. Let me read these verses, which are kind of difficult for some, but let me read it this way. The unjust being justified as a gift by God's merciful grace through the redemption which is in Christ. Redemption meaning what? He's paid the price. He's paid the price, which is what? In his own blood. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, meaning he paid the full wrath of God. As a, as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, his righteous love. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier who has faith in Jesus. Do we begin to see it makes more sense or begin to understand it a little better? As a result, God rightly loves his people and makes us fit for his kingdom. So we are the people of God on whom God has poured out his justice, his wrath in full measure and has poured out his mercy in full measure. He has done that upon each one of us personally. But in Christ... Do we see it? In Christ, Rosa, God poured out his full justice for your sin and at the same time poured out his full mercy for your salvation. So if I sin today, can I be punished for it? Can I be punished for my sin today? You can answer. It's okay to answer, teacher. When teacher asks questions, you may answer. Is it just for God to punish those whom he has punished in Christ? Is it just for God to punish even one sin in me since all of my sin has been already justly punished in Christ? Can God punish me for even any one sin? Can he do that? Yes or no? No. Why? Because to do so 
causes him to be inconsistent with his own nature. Christ has received the punishment. How much of it? All of it. For how many of the sins? All of them. Therefore, is there anything we need to do once we are in Christ in a time frame, once we have received this? Is there anything we need to do to get God to forgive us? No. Is there anything we can do to get God to give, uh, forgive us? No. What is our response? Humble gratitude. Thank you. Thank you. And the response is also, create in me a repentant heart where, forget, where sin exists so that that sin in me may be as an activity rooted out. It's forgiven, but its activity needs to be overcome. Do we see the difference? It is forgiven, but its activity, its presence in me must be rooted out, must be dealt with, must be overcome. That's where the disconnect is in believers. We're not ignoring sin, but now we can look at our own sin without fear of condemnation and judgment. Romans 8.1, there is therefore when. Now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so now we can identify our sin. It can be identified by the Holy Spirit, by the Word, by a friend, by someone who hates us, whatever. Now, you're just a nasty old crow. Oh, okay. You're right. So when someone puts you down, you can say what? You just don't know how bad I am. Hey, fool, you just don't know how foolish I have been. Hey, you know, you're no good. You just don't know how no good. Don't let the devil bother you. And to revel in this, that the more you tell me, the more I realize, oh, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the grace of God. What a God we have. Amen? Don't let the devil bother you. Don't let your friends bother you. People call you names. It's amazing to me how many Christians get upset when they're called names or vilified. They don't even know the half of it, do they? We know more than they know, and we don't know much in relation to what God knows. And yet, where is all that? It's in the forgiveness of God. As a result, God rightly loves his people to make us fit. His mercy. Let's look at these verses. And let's see a, the clearest and most amazing and blazing example of the marriage of justice and mercy. From Isaiah 53. And let's read these verses and think about, again, justice and mercy as applied to a man on our behalf and as our substitute. He, who is he? The anointed one, the Messiah, and we know that this is about Jesus. He was pierced through for our transgressions. Why? Why? Justice. 
This is justice. The world wants justice. The world screams for justice. The society screams for justice. People march for justice. You want justice? Then may I read that verse to you again, Mary? You demand justice? He was pierced through for our transgressions. If you weren't one of those our, the justice of God that you were calling for is eternal wrath. <laughs> Do we get it? When the world calls for justice, it is calling for God's eternal wrath to be poured out upon them if they're not saved. When the church calls for justice, it is in a thankful way that on him all the wrath was poured out at the cross. Don't let the world steal or compromise or confuse God's justice. Don't let it do that. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, his beating, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. It was due to us, but it fell upon him. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor were there any deceit in his mouth. <clears throat> but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. That's Romans 5.1. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he has poured out himself to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. When we read that, then maybe we'll understand what 1 John 3, 1 says. What does the apostle say? 1 John 1, 3. I'm sorry, 1 John 3, 1, sorry. 1 John 3, 1, what? Anybody know what 1 John 3, 1 says? Hmm? Somebody quote it? What kind of love is this that the Father has poured out upon us that we should be called the children of God and such we are? What kind of love is this? You see, this is love. This is justice. This is mercy. When you look at the man on the cross, and all of that has come to us by the Holy Spirit. So the apostle writes by the Spirit in Romans 5, 5, for the love of God, this love, has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
Next week, we'll start talking about God's intra-Trinitarian love.